Hi everyone, today is April 10th, 2014. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Uh, our guest today is Larry Zweifel. He is an assistant professor of pharmacology at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Hi, Larry. Hi. His research focuses on uh, understanding the activity patterns of the mesolimbic dopamine system. He combines uh, conditional genetic manipulations, electrophysiology, fiber optic fluorescence microscopy, fast scan voltammetry, and the kitchen sink with behavioral assays to understand how channel and receptor level manipulations of circuits impact behavior. Is that about right? That's correct. I think the, the kitchen sink that? analogy is absolutely perfect. That's that's kind of how we describe what we do is sort of kitchen sink science is we just throw everything in it and. <laughs> Well, awesome. what we're going to talk about that, hopefully. Yeah. So around the room today, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. We've got Gerard Bowden. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So I'm, I'm tempted to just jump into some of the, the really compelling um, multidisciplinary stuff you're doing on, like, linking proteins to schizophrenia, for example. But uh, but I want to kind of step back to get kind of your take and, and everyone's take, I guess, on something that I think, I don't even know if younger scientists even consider much anymore, this dichotomy between reductionist versus holistic science and understanding, um, you know, uh, so for example, when behaviorists and geneticists, so you look at, at linking, um, you know, genes to behavior ultimately sort of at the largest scale. So back in the day when these were sort of largely separate disciplines, um, there was all this great sort of first principle stuff done on, you know, various things. And now, here we are in the dopamine field. Are we just in a really good position to sort of think holistically in that field? Or do you, do you just see the progression sort of going on forever? Is there, is there going to be a setback, do you think, at some point? I mean, what's your take on this? Yeah, I don't think it's restricted to the dopamine field. I think the as technology has advanced and genetics has become more widespread, that it has um been able to infiltrate other disciplines and the two have merged together more easily than in the past because in the past genetics was an extremely complex problem to tackle especially when with animal models like mice and rats and doing inbred inbreeding for many 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 generations to actually see something and then you have a genetic trait but you actually don't have any idea what the gene is <laughs> so um, so because of the ability to manipulate the genome, it's made it a lot easier. And I think that's that's the reason. And I don't think it's going to go anywhere, but continue to move forward. So are there any sort of caveats? Do you, do you ever have sort of this uh, you know, conflict in yourself between the reductionist training that you may have received? Because I think, you know, this generation kind of sitting around the room are kind of the first... I don't know, Charlie. Is that true? I, I feel like we can't you... possibly be the same generation as the rest of us. <laughs> well, that's why I've been pointing at you to set us straight. I'm just trying to get a sense well, of. I, I think that the, the, the dopamine field sort of lends itself to this only because people at least believe they have an idea that dopamine cells have some impact, direct impact on behavior. Um, for example, dopamine cells. Um, directly involved in addiction, they're directly involved, of course, in Parkinson's disease. So any kind of genetic manipulation that's going to affect dopamine neurons is going to have some relevant or, or disease-relevant behavior effect. So it's, it's amenable to having 
genes and behavior all in one sort of project. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, and I it just makes it easier. To, that's true. To, to, to you know, whenever you have a a system or a neuron that is known to be involved in specific behaviors, then it's easy to do a manipulation and look at those behaviors as opposed to trying to study <clears throat> genes in a part of a brain where you don't really know what the gene is doing and you don't know what the part of the brain is doing. Yeah. Like that, and I think that's part of the problem that people jump into head first. They yeah. start doing genetics in different brain regions and they don't really even know what the brain region does. And then it turns into a mess, basically. Yeah. So I think there's something to be said for the first principle approach and just figuring out independently what this part of the brain does, um, how it regulates behavior, and then looking at the genetics behind it. But the genetics behind the dopamine neuron is not a smaller problem than the genetics in the brain. Because basically the dopamine neuron is affected by a zillion... Right different genes, just like the brain is almost exactly the same. It's a slightly smaller but subset, but it's still an enormous number. So what's the what is the the big the big plan? I mean, do we want to use the dopamine cell as a test bed to try to figure out what a particular gene does in, in order to understand a gene? Or do we want to study the dopamine cells genes to figure out how, how the dopamine cell works? Or? Yeah, I think from my perspective, and everyone's not going to have the same perspective, but I'm interested in what the gene does in the dopamine neuron that makes the dopamine neuron do what it does, as opposed to using the dopamine system as a way to figure out what the gene does, um, which is a perfectly rational and reasonable thing to do, is to use a well-defined system to study gene function because you know what it does, right? But to me, it's much more interesting to figure out <clears throat> what the genes in the cell does to make that cell who it is, and to give it an identity, so to speak. So how do we, out of all the genes, I don't know how many, are the, what's the right number to place on the number of genes that are expressed in a dopamine cell? It's probably quite a large number. Yes. Do you know how many? Uh, I mean, do, no. Even a, you uh, know, I don't think that anyone's ever tried to answer that question directly, like how, what, although, what proportion of the total, genome, of the total genome, genome, genome is expressed? Um, that's a good question. But it should be a it's going to be a, It's going to be a relatively large number because most of the genes are housekeeping genes, so they're going to be expressed in every cell. So, and of course, those aren't important for making a dopamine cell no. a dopamine cell. Right. It's just making a cell a cell or right. a neuron a right. neuron. Right, right. Uh, so, um, so if we wanted to, like, draw a line around that, you know, if we have a big field of all the genes and we want to draw the line around the little group that make the dopamine cell a dopamine cell, how do we identify those as the dopamine cell-specific? Right. So there's, because, of course, a lot of those genes are going to be expressed in other neurons, too, and it's right. some kind of combination that makes right. the dopamine cell. Not right. A, it's the combination, right, exactly. Yeah. It's the combinatorial interaction of the, of the genes that form, I guess, a network, if you will, that then defines what that cell is. And now we have techniques where we can actually <clears throat> specifically isolate polyribosomes from specific cells and then look at actively translated uh, messenger RNA. So we can actually look at the translational profile of a dopamine neuron in which we've genetically isolated the polyribosomes 
and compare it to any other cell in the brain, a GABA neuron that's in the same place or a medium spiny neuron that's in the, off in the distance that the dopamine neuron is communicating, and then compare and contrast the actual expression profiles of the cells and then build a picture of what makes them unique and what makes them... This is them a sort of brute force approach, right? I mean, yes. It means cataloging zillions of... Well, the, the beauty of it is, though, you have... Um, you just you isolate the polyribosomes, and then you can do a gene array, and it has annotated every gene that's on the array. You could get more sophisticated and do RNA-seq if you really wanted to get so it's a really high resolution. But just for a simple pass, just doing a gene array of you know 10,000 genes that are all annotated, and then you know of those 10,000 that you pick from you know of 10 of the 30,000 total genes, probably, right? Then you can compare and contrast across the different cell types and find out. But you've out. got to do it within cell types, too, because no right. two cells are going to be fine. <clears throat> exactly. Well, and there's, well, that's when it gets really complicated. So what we're actually... <laughs> so what we're proposing to do and what other people are starting to do is to actually isolate dopamine neurons and compare the <laughs> translational profile of dopamine neurons that project at different targets. Uh-huh. So a dopamine neuron is a dope. We already know from um, electrophysiological data, as well as some um, more smaller scale genetic analysis, that a dopamine neuron that projects to the prefrontal cortex is not the same as a dopamine neuron that projects to the striatum. So what we want to do is <clears throat> isolate these cells based on where they project and then compare the full translational profile of those cells and find out what makes a dopamine neuron a dopamine neuron and what makes a dopamine a, a mesocortical dopamine neuron different from a, a mesostriatal dopamine neuron. So I, of course, again, that, those are comparing things along this and then each, each of those. Yes. And then uh, I, I'm just sort of wondering about how dynamic that is because one of the, some of the genes are probably... Pretty stable, like yes. in some sense, the gene that is responsible for as dopamine cell being a dopamine cell, that set of genes should be pretty stable because you, the dopamine cell probably isn't going to turn into something else anytime soon. But within each one of these, there's probably fluctuations all over the place. And so, if we followed one cell, if we could, which right. of course over a long period of time, we would probably not get exactly the same list of of genes being expressed at any one moment. Right. And, of course, that would be interesting in itself. Right. But it also uh, complicates the problem of comparing across. Right. Yeah, I think the the first pass is you just compare, right, in a more crude manner. But the beauty of these techniques <clears throat> are that you can actually track a cell type in a specific brain region and changes in its translational profile across many different manipulations, whether it's responses to um, drugs of abuse or whether it's in a schizophrenia model or a response to antipsychotic drug, whatever manipulation you want to throw at it, you can then isolate the polyribosomes from the treated and the control animals and compare them and see what's dynamically changing under different scenarios. So, so what I think do, people do know that is that one person decides, I'm going to look at what happens when you give cocaine, and then another person decides, I'm going to look at what happens when you learn some kind of simple task, and another person says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And we never actually do the thing that you started out saying to, de- to define the genes that make a dopamine cell a dopamine cell. Yeah. 
Have you heard that? Mm-hmm. Just fragment like that, or is that is that well, is it, yeah. you? Or I mean, I sounds to me like it's just a fragmented right thing, I think, and nobody's data ever gets com- compared to anybody else's data directly. Right, and I think the beauty of the the Allen Brain Institute, for example, with the annotation of the um, gene expression profiles that they've done using in situ, in situ hybridization, <clears throat> has spurred people to be a bit more big picture thinking. So people are, you know, wanting to annotate all of their data. They want to put it on the internet so people can search it. So I think that the time has come where information is going to be disseminated not just through publications, but actual websites that you can go and search through people's data, especially expression data, and figure out What's expressed when and where, and under what conditions? See, so the brute force. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sort of monopolizing. This. Okay. I'll stop it in just a second. But the the brute force endeavor that I was sort of trying to draw out of you, in which we just sort of set out to find for one neuron in the brain, and yeah. all the like fifteen hundred and eighty three different kind of neurons there are in the brain, but we just pick one, and we just uh, find out exactly what are the genes that are expressed in that neuron. Um, kind of never gets done by one person. It just no. gets done in a bazillion different experiments that were collected for all different reasons. Right. And then they all get collected up at one time and somebody goes, okay, now I'm going to sift through all of this and get the answer to that question. As though it was all unbiased approaches to begin with, which it, was, which it really wasn't. Is yeah. that, <laughs> yes, that's right. They yeah. were all right. those experiments they were all designed for something else. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a... I mean, I think the problem is you need a driving force to do that kind of analysis. You need something like an institute which can devote a tremendous amount of resource to something that is extremely valuable, big picture, but would crush an individual researcher under the weight of it, right? So you have to have a large number of people dedicated to that type of a question, and that's probably why it gets broken down the way it does in the real scientific world because everybody can only afford to do one little piece of it as opposed to doing the big piece. So that would be my answer, I guess. (laughs) It was interesting, though, that what you mentioned, just putting your data out there online, um, I think that would facilitate uh, the sort of aggregation of data so that other people can... Essentially, you're crowdsourcing, right? Right. right. And, and and so now other people can sort of sift through all of your data or everybody's data, yeah, because it's out there. Right. Um, whereas right now, we just publish papers, right? And we, you know, you put your your best your best figure traces or your best cell, and then you give everybody the average plus or minus the standard and or mean or something right. like that. Yeah. And, um, but but in, and I think in the physics world, though, this is. Uh, more common where people the big just, data. they just put a big data yeah. out there they just said here's all the data <laughs> yeah. have at it yeah. Yeah. and yeah. people do have at it would be, I would imagine that there would be disciplines that would emerge out of that scenario in which you have people who are solely mining the data that's out there, they're not collecting any new data right. they're just looking at all of the data that's out there and, and piecing that together and you could make probably a 
fairly nice career just going through other people's data <laughs> and seeing because you can compare and contrast and correlate and you can probably get a better sense of what a specific brain region or a specific cell is doing if you have all of the data and you can line through it and you can piece it together and you can look for correlations and commonalities that then pop out because you have such a high statistical power that would be buried in the minutia of an N of five or six, right, that you would never see. But if you have an N of 5,000 of all the replicates that everyone's ever done on this, <clears throat> I bet you would find tremendously interesting things in that data. Have you guys settled on a on a format for storing data online so that everybody's storing their data in the same way and everybody can read everybody else's data? No, no, I haven't, you know, this is, uh, it would be, yeah, I mean, that's, a, well, a lot of journals now are actually requesting people to provide so their right. actual data for their paper and then they're storing it, so. In a particular form, though? They want the Excel files of all of the data, the primary data. Oh, uh, when I have to put my data into Excel, that's when I quit signing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but whatever format it's in, they use to make the to do the statistical analysis and to do the graphs. That's the data they want. Yeah, and you know it's met with, I think, some resistance. Some people are a little like, "Whoa, that's my data." That's <laughs> yeah, that's my data. You know, and I don't want anybody else poking around in it. So, uh, of course, it's not their data. Yeah, <laughs> what they didn't pay for. No, they didn't pay for it's it. It's never paid for. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's right. So, talk about going from the human literature to your circuit models, because you know you things like resilience and schizophrenia and ADHD. I mean, all these things. The dopamine literature is full of claims about these sorts of things having, you know, elemental ties to the research that people are doing. How do you approach that? Oh, wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, <laughs> I think, if anything, I'm guilty of um, of not reading a lot of the literature. I don't, I tend to, and some people disagree with this, I don't like my judgment to be clouded by other people's preconceived notions. So I will do experiments make the observation and then go and look to see what other people have found and what doesn't make sense in terms of the way other people think about it. But I tend to restrict my reading until after I found something interesting. And then aren't you worried uh, that sometimes you might find something interesting that's been found many times before? Uh, well, I mean, you have to have an, you have to have some knowledge of the literature, right? But and there's, there's an infinite, in my opinion, some people would say there's a limited number of experiments that can be done, but there's an infinite number of combinations of experiments that can be done. So the probability that someone has done the same exact combination of experiments that I have just done is highly unlikely. So the combinations of experiments that you do, yeah. <laughs> they're like a combination lock. You can't yeah. possibly do all those combinations. Yeah. It's kind of interesting though, because like initially, so one thing that was that Charlie brings up though is this idea that, and you even mentioned it, right? Is like want to look at dopamine cells that project to different sites, right? Because then clearly, so there is no like one true like dopamine cell, right? Because then all of this, there's in fact dopamine cells that project to all different areas, and then 
potentially do different things, I guess, right? And yet, you know, I'm a slice physiologist, and, you know, basically they either tonically firing or physically firing. And yet, you know, it seems as, I think even, like, Schultz's work has said that, you know, give, give rewards and pretty much all the dopamine cells start bursting, basically. And yet, they're all doing different things because they're projecting their different areas. Yeah. Yeah, so there's... Um been debates in the literature for as long as people have been recording from dopamine neurons. Um, And I think the original observations that the dopamine neurons were activated by reward was actually fairly serendipitous. Hmm. They were recording from the dopamine neurons and I'm I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think they were looking for movement-related activity mm. because they were recording from the pars compacta, yeah. which projects to the dorsal striatum, which right. would be movement-related yeah. events, right? <clears throat> and the animals were performing a behavioral task yeah. in which they got a reward for performing the behavioral task, and they didn't see a lot of responses yeah. to the motor, but they saw responses when the animal got <laughs> rewarded. So they're like, right. oh. Dopamine is reward, you know that, yeah. and that coupled with the previous literature from Roy Wise and others that dopamine is sort of the reward yeah. part of the brain, and then it sort of that spiraled into dopamine is the reward right. neurotransmitter of the brain, and that's all it does yeah. is reward. So then we had to, I think, after decades of other people publishing other reports saying that it does other things, yeah. um, it took a while for people to be like, oh, yeah, it does other things. <laughs> so it's it's kind of an interesting tale in science of how yeah. the perceptions can swing drastically yeah. in one direction or the other, depending on what's being published at that particular time. Sure. Right? So, I mean, people had recorded aversive responses of dopamine neurons since the 1970s. Yeah. But once the reward hypothesis came out, all of that then got swept under the rug because it didn't fit. Yeah. Right? And then other people started doing those experiments again. They're like, oh, hey, these neurons, this is one of those experiments where we had actually done recording, I'm like, oh, yeah, they're activated by the aversive stimulus, and then... And then you read the paper. And then I read the paper, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> we're not the only one that's seen this. <laughs> we're not... And, <laughs> but, it, you know, it's interesting, because um, I actually... The paper that Carlos and I published together in 2009, I guess it was, I had... Um, I think it was that paper, yeah. I had submitted it to a different journal. I won't name names. Um, and got the reviews back. And in that paper, the very last figure, there was an experiment where the animals were run through an aversive conditioning paradigm. And I got the nastiest review back because of that one experiment. Basically, the reviewer said, dopamine is only involved in reward processing and why you would even do that experiment makes absolutely no sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so that, I mean, that's how dogmatic I think that yeah. 
things can become when people have a specific mindset, right? But so there's the question they raised, though, yeah. which I'm still kind of thinking about. Sure. Which is like uh, if you look at Schultz's papers, he says like 80 percent of the cells are yeah. responding in his task. Yeah. And of course, he was probably just respond recording in. In parts compacta and not uh -huh. way onto VTA, and certainly not the most medial part of VTA, yeah. which is kind of a long way from where sure. I was aiming. Uh, but it always seemed odd that 80% of the yeah. cells were engaged in the that particular one task. Yeah. And then now that we know that there's, that there's a whole bunch of different cell populations that have different yeah. targets, it seems even stranger than it did yeah. then. And so... I mean, what do you think about that, Gerard? I mean, that seems to me that they yeah. they they ought to be doing different things, different right? Things. Like yeah, it's involved in something that has to do with fear conditioning, and something else has something to do with reward. Something maybe, else has to do with movement dynamics, and maybe you're just lucky that he was recording in <laughs> yeah. Compacta. He was just all the same, which stuff. happens yeah. <laughs> at least in Compacta itself, or in the rodent, at least that I know of. Yeah. Compacta cells are very similar to each other. Yeah. So they all are basically nigrostriatal cells, and they kind of look the same. Had, had, he, had he been in the VTA, perhaps, yeah. uh, he would have gone down to 30% or something. Yeah. yeah. I don't I, know. I think that's true. I, I totally agree. I think because of the, you know, the compacta is much more heterogeneous than the, the VTA, for example, because... 80, yeah, 80 to 90 percent of the cells there only project to the striatum. So, and they use volume transmission in rodent and in primate. Uh, I, well, this is rodent. I think primate is pretty much so there. There are some dopamine neurons, I believe, in the compacta that also project to the motor cortex, for example, and some other parts of the brain. But, but it's still the large majority projects to the striatum. And the striatum is a very large structure, so it requires a lot of cells to get it fully innervated. Um, and I think because it does volume transmission, it just they all do the same thing because they're yeah, but they all have little domains. If you look at their arborizations, no one dopamine cell fills the whole yeah. striatum. No, so there's one dopamine cell here that's going to the hand area should only be involved in rewards right. that have something to do with hand movement. Another one that goes to the foot area should only be involved yeah. in the rewards that have something to do with foot movement. Now, why would they both be responding in the same task? Because yeah. if for their job is to train the neurons that are controlling the hand to control the hand properly, then there's no reason why the reward in the hand task should be going to the neurons that control the foot and training them at the same time as training for a hand task. So I just, I don't think that saying, well, that all is just motor and the motor is just all one thing, yeah. which is like, I think that's what VTA folks would tend to say because yeah. they don't think at all about what motor really means. Yeah. But motor is a million things. It's all right. the different things that you do. And we need to learn, you know, how to uh, pat our bellies and uh, rub our bellies and pat our heads at the same time, right? I mean, the, the motor system has to be... So what, what if the dopamine is just facilitating whatever motor movement you happen to be doing at that time? And it's all the whole body. So right? it's just, it's just um, it's, if, if Larry's thing is correct, that it's all volume transmission, right? And then it's just flooding striatum with dopamine. And then whatever circuit it happens to be on at that moment... 
through. Don't be like baseball pitchers. You know, I've learned that I'm going to get rewarded every time I push this button, but I've got some kind of superstitious thing about my sock. And, and that happens. Right? <laughs> that happens. So that happens. That actually happens, right? So it happens with baseball. And, and um, Skinner showed that with his pigeons uh, as well. No, it doesn't yeah. happen very much. I mean, Not very much. <laughs> yeah. But they do. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, I think there's something to, there's something to that, too. Watching animals do behavior, yeah, is there is stereotypical behavior that comes out of an animal because the first time it did something, it thought maybe that was partially related to the fact that it turned That's around in a circle before it put its head in the food hopper, and they will turn it around in a circle every time. Really? Before they put their head in the food hopper. Yeah, because yes. this is nothing. Yeah, Skinner yeah. did this yeah. with his black box experiment. Yeah. He had a pigeon in there, and he saw that some pigeons were. Started poking the back of the box before they went and poked at the right part yeah. of the box. Yeah, and they would do it in superstitious behavior. It was super. Yeah, he called it superstitious behavior. Yeah, just like your baseball. Yeah, that's right. exactly right. <laughs> so, so they. Yeah, I don't know, but it's, it's just. So why? It, but why evolutionarily? Why make? Why link all those associations? I mean, most of the time they work out to be true, or I mean, I don't. I, don't I guess enough of the time it was true, maybe. Right. I guess it depends on what time frame well, they're thinking yeah. about. I mean, I think it's hard, it's hard to predict. I, I think it's for the for the brain to act, actually allow us to move through our environment and to make accurate predictions. Sometimes it it casts a broad net so that it makes sure that it doesn't miss something, and that's why you get these so-called superstitious behaviors because it's being ingrained as part of the the normal behavior that gets us what we want, but it has to be extinguished that the other extraneous stuff isn't required. And that's what happens when you learn something new, right? You you put a lot more energy and effort into the movements and coordinating something in the beginning, and then you realize over time that it refines down to something much more simple. So this is not just movement, but anything, even in research, right? So you start out, and you're doing, to get to the end result, you have like 50 different parameters that you're manipulating, right? And, and then at the end, after a protocol has been used for decades, everybody's found all the shortcuts and it's worked down to something that's, you know, 10 times shorter than it was originally because you do all these other things because, well, I don't want to take it out because if th- that might be a critical part of it, right? So I think that's sort of how the brain operates. Is it, it just casts How does it do that? How does it do that? So I can see that, so there, that, that refinement process, which we can see it in our own behavior if you start trying to learn some new... Uh, task, you are moving all kinds of muscles and joints mm-hmm. you don't have to move, and then over time you get good at it and you're doing it very efficiently, and we call that graceful. Right? Mm-hmm. That's what graceful means. And so, uh, so in order to, to, what drives that refinement process? If you're just getting a dopamine reward every time you do it correctly, mm-hmm. then why would you ever refine the movement uh, further? What drives that? It's difficult to say because you, I, I think your premise, your original premise that the motor, it's just motor and that just means movement is probably incorrect just based on Schultz's work where you get, after you make an association of the cue and a reward, bursting happens with the cue. We're well, not performing any motor movement, right? At least not related to actually receiving the reward. So I, I don't know. I don't know what it's doing. That's the question. That's the problem. Yeah, for me at least, I, don't, I have no idea. I think if all the dopamine neurons are working together all the time, doing exactly the same thing, yeah, it'd be pretty hard to explain that. Yeah, I would yeah. say too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 
Maybe that 20% that didn't do anything were the crucial ones. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the ones. <laughs> so one of the key things that Wolfram did, I mean, the story that you told is about the way I remember the story, but I think that there several people had been doing experiments where the, the monkeys were performing motor tests and they were recording from the neurons. And in those days, the, the way the experiment was designed, it's still a lot of times, is that you train a monkey to do the test before you implant any the chamber that holds the electrodes or any of that stuff. And your monkey is expert at the task before you ever put the chamber on the skull and start putting electrodes in. And so people had done that with overtrained monkeys in the standard motor way, and they weren't getting anything. And as Schultz basically recorded from a naive monkey who'd never performed the task before. And so then he was, so all the rewards were unexpected, whereas in the overtrained monkey, all the rewards were completely predictable. And so the, 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 there was no expectation error ever in any direction in those overtrained monkeys. But when he put the monkey in a, a not, relatively naive monkey in the task, then he started seeing these responses of dopamine neurons. And I think that that's, you know, somewhere in there is sort of the key to it. Because you yeah. could say, uh, if I just take a, a monkey, Let's say I do it in me, myself. I'm recording from my own domain. And I've lived a long time. And I've done a bunch of stuff. And I've got a trillion uh, associations, Q-reward associations all piled up. And now I start start recording from my neurons. It's not going to make any sense at all. I mean, the dopamine neurons are firing at all kind of weird times. I'm predicting a reward on the basis of the look on somebody's face. You know, I don't know what kind of reward I'm predicting exactly yeah. in that case. But the, the, uh, the, the complexity of it all, is, of all of those different associations, has to be supported by complexity in the dopamine network. Right. If it does, reward prediction error, as we say it does. Mm-hmm. So there has to be a lot of heterogeneity. This is my rant, I guess, in this. I think there really has to be a lot of heterogeneity. And, you know, you're used to recording neurons and dopamine neurons in slices, and you say they all look alike. But they don't all look alike. Every single one of them is unique. And all you do is, like, you blank on every difference between the cell because that's just variability, and you don't like variability. And you remember (laughs) all the commonalities that they have because those are the things that we can hope to manipulate and get a reliable change, whereas the variable things right. are, are so variable you're never going to see them change when things when you give a treatment. Yeah. You're not going to be able to yeah. them. But really, uh, the neurons are all super different from each other. And yeah. I don't know what that means exactly, but uh, for dopamine cells. Sure. But but I think that we we have this really strong tendency to just sweep all that variability between cells uh, out of our... It's not that we're hiding it from others. We... we Disguise it from our own. Remove it from our own consciousness. <laughs> but that's a good thing that's happening right now in the dopamine field with a lot of the work that where people are cataloging heterogeneity among yeah. dopamine cells, yeah. Yeah. especially uh, in terms of where they project to. Right. So cortical projecting dopamine cells have dopamine transporter, but apparently have no IH that you can see. There's no. HCN channels on them whatsoever. Yeah. Whereas uh, other people use that as diagnostic. For as dopamine. a diagnostic for for being non-dopamine. I know it's yeah. a dopamine cell. Yeah. I saw that. Like, yeah. But in, <laughs> but in um, Compacta, they have a ton of HCN channels. 
which we use as a diagnostic. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Larry Zweifel. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.